You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley, and with me today is my good friend and Make It podcast co-host, Nicholas Bugs. Hello, hello, Chris here with another episode of the Make It Podcast, and this is an Indie Talk Week, and that means I have my good friend and co-founder with me, Nicholas Bugs. Nick, say hello. What's up, everybody? We are back. We are back, and there's a lot on our minds, and this week, we're going to talk a little bit about what the Oscars will be like this year. Uh, When is enough enough? Like how many streamers? We're going to have just a big streamer conversation as well. Uh, Winners and losers in streaming, how to make sense of it up or down, what kind of movies you should be making as an indie creative based on what's being streamed. And the streaming squeeze, uh, going back to that sort of when is enough enough uh, context, you know, the the streaming squeeze that's going to happen as people have to start making decisions financially about which streamers to buy and which ones to not. And last but not least, we thought we'd talk a little bit about reintroducing Bonsai to a degree. There's a lot of people that might not know why we do this podcast and what it's all about and where we came from and how it started and what is just the origin story. Um, we People love comic book movies, Nick. They love origin stories. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> so we, we want to give a little bit of our origin story, talk about what we do, what we're all about, and what's coming up in the future a little bit. Um, but we'll start right there with, with, with just this thing that was on our mind about the award seasons this year and about 20 to 30 the- theatrical movies have been pushed to TBD to be determined and to 2021. And what you're left with is, you know, the dark and the wicked and jungle land and kindred and Mulan and invisible band and hopefully tenant, um, as like your awards favorites and uh, along with some others. But what's missing in all that are all these other movies, Nick, that we were supposed to see that probably would have got sort of Oscar nods and Golden Globe nods and all that stuff. And, um, and the star power that kind of comes with it. Now, Look, I'm not all about star power only, but when I think about this movie season, this year of movies, what it's definitely missing is all the big stars that would normally be in theatrical releases. The Brad Pitts, the Leonardo DiCaprio's, the Daniel Craig's, so on and so forth. And what we have instead are people who um, are stars and, and good, great talents, but they're in movies and shows that are designed and shot just for streaming, Nick. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear you there. You know, if you go back to what you mentioned about the things that we're not seeing because they're getting pushed out, you know, I think there's also the things that we're not seeing in the ways that we're, we're familiar with seeing. So the things that went to streaming that normally would have gone to the theater, right? right. So it's, it's all different. So yeah, there's a bunch of movies that, you know, we're getting pushed into 2021. So we won't see those, the theatrical ones. We don't get the same feeling from watching them, uh, at home than we would have, you know, in the theater, not just because they were, um, on a big screen, but because there's always a larger experience around watching those. So that kind of goes away. Uh, but you know, what I always come back to when it comes to, um, you know, the Oscars, it's like, well, what gets best picture or what have whatever it is, isn't up to us, right? It's not a populist decision. It's the Academy's decision. So, you know, the movies that they're going to rate, it doesn't matter whether they were seen in the theater by us or not, right? It doesn't matter if some of them were pushed out, they're going to be given, you know, all of these films to see. It's like when you go to Netflix and they push content in front of you, right? And they tell you, Hey, because you watch this, this, and this, you should watch this. Mm -hmm. I feel like the Academy doesn't get that. 
they get something that's much more curated and that's coming directly from the studios. You know, so who's going to win Oscars 2021? Well, it's going to be Disney. It's going to be Sony Pictures. It's going to be Universal Pictures. It's going to be Bleecker, like Netflix. It's basically the same folks you're going to see. And you may not have seen the movies and I may not have seen them, but the Academy has seen them because they were sent directly to the Academy for them to consider for Oscar contention. Yeah. And a lot of these do, you are going to see great stories, but you're going to see a type of story, I think. And also, you know, I think it's always been a mix of what is a great movie and a great story. And then what was populist, right? Like, like we had Parasite, but then you also had, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or 1917 last year, or just movies that had, you know, uh, Get Out, for example, you know, movies that had massive, massive box office. And so I would not be surprised if you saw Mulan. Is Mulan a great movie? No, it is not. I liked it. You didn't like it at all, but neither one of us are saying that it's great, but it did huge numbers. Is Invisible Man a great movie? It's good. I would not say it's great. I do love Elizabeth Moss, but that could be maybe up for contention. Even Tenet, which feels like a theater movie, and I saw it in the theater twice. It's a big, bombastic movie. Is it great? Like from a story standpoint? No, it's not. It is beautifully shot. It is well done. It is executed to the to the the, the nth degree. But that doesn't make it the best story you've ever seen. But you're going to see it because it actually had literal box office you know, in a, in a theater. Um, so I, it's kind of like, I see it both ways. Like I, I think we're going to get what was popular this year, but then I think you're going to get movies like on the rocks, which is kind of like, uh, maybe lost in translation. <laughs> uh, and stories aren't anywhere similar, but it's, it feels like it's a lost in translation part two for, for Bill Murray and, or, or a movie like the swerve, um, or Cajillionaire. Cajillionaire is is one that you you could say, okay, that's going to get a nod. But would it have gotten a nod in any other year, I guess, is the question. Yeah, I don't know. I think this is, it's kind of funny when you say, would it have gotten a nod in any other year? Well, there's no year like 2020. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it literally stands on its own. So it's just, you th- I think you just have to think about it that way. Like whatever happens this year is what happens this year. You know, everything, this might be the tipping point, right? This might be the change in what, you know, gets Oscar nominated or wins an Oscar from net for now until the next five to 10 years until something else shifts, you know, but like I said, there's, there's tons. If you know, if you go out to variety in there, I think they've got a, a, a number of films that they're considering for Oscar contention in 2021. And that list isn't short. Right. And mm-hmm. what's familiar to me about the list is the lack of familiarity I have with a bunch of the titles. This is one of the same things that happens with me every year with the Oscars. It's like, what movie is that? <laughs> you know, like who saw this movie? Like, why is this up for an Oscar? Oh, okay. That director. Oh, okay. That actor that really wasn't on my list to watch, but Hey, I guess maybe I should, right? Because the Oscars are saying that I should, but there's, there's a bunch of movies. I mean, I'm seeing right now, you know, from searchlight, you got nomad land and Netflix. Yeah, nomad land's got a, got a big, big uh, push behind it. Yeah, Netflix trial of the Chicago seven. We've got Amazon studios with one night in Miami a24 has Minari, Netflix, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Sony Pictures Classics, The Father, Universal uh, Pictures, News of the World, Netflix, The Prom, Warner Brothers, Judas and the Black Messiah. Wow. You know, so, you know, that's that's 10 right there. Well, right? well what out stands of- out, though, Nick, is that some of those are documentaries. And it's like, I wonder if this will be the year where a document can a documentary actually win movie of the year. Yeah, potentially. I mean, and for me, or some of those are documentary like the documentary like or based yeah. on a true story. Yeah. Uh, but I'll just say this is that, you know, there might be a trend towards them um, because of the I think there's a growing desire for uh, the docu series. Right. Like we're seeing docu series now that 
I don't think we were seeing two years ago, mm-hmm. right? The number of them that are out there and just the popularity of them. So I think that there is a growing desire for, you know, documentary or at least things that are reflective of the, of the real. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think that there's something to that. So maybe again, there's a shift that's happening in 2020 around the types of content that people are interested in and maybe more introspective content is what people are looking for. I mean, the Joker is not a real story, right? But the way that they made that, yeah, <laughs> that was real. You know what I'm saying? Like that you, that was an introspection into, you know, the troubles of an individual, the troubled mind and, and, you know, what the out, you know, the, the world basically did to this person to make them turn in a way, yeah. you know, then you look at marriage story, like, ugh, <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that's how I felt about that movie. It's just, ugh. like, honestly, you know, I'll, I'll tell everybody like my wife and I, cause everybody was telling me, Oh, you should watch it with your wife. And I'm like, well, we don't watch stuff like that. Like we don't watch stuff. That's like a downer. Right. And they're like, no, 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 you should watch it. You should watch it. So we finally, you know, we, we gave into the, uh, the social pressure and we watched it, man. We didn't make it all the way through that movie. I think we made it halfway through. We're like, this isn't for us, man. Like this yeah. isn't about, we're about, we're, no, there's no value we're going to get from this movie. But my point is, is that it was one of those top films because of the, the real, right. The realism, the introspective nature of going into these characters in a real authentic, you know, even dirty way. Like it just well, doesn't see, feel I, dirty, but it feels almost real. Well, you know, I, I think that's revisionist history to a degree. I mean, look, the, the, the thing I, I will say about this and going back to your comment about some of the movies from last year, I want movies like Parasite and Jojo Rabbit to win. I thought those stories were the best stories, some of the best stories I'd seen in my life. And I want movies like that to win. I And I love this idea that more creators are getting to create. What I'm afraid of is that we're not going to get, there won't be any more Schindler's List. There won't be any more, you know, three-hour epics. There won't be movies that are shot specifically for theater because the way you shoot for, for theater and the way you shoot for streaming are different. And the kind of people that sign on to those kind of films are different. Maybe it won't always be that way. But the reason I say that Joker is revisionist history is, is because I think Joker was nominated because it was so popular, because it did so well at the box office. And maybe it's a little bit of like sort of like the social uh, its theme, you know, that, you know, Todd Phillips obviously did a great job with the movie. It looks great, but I'm saying the theme of it was very much on level with the current zeitgeist and sort of the feel of people today. If you look at the movie itself, Nick, it was not greatly, it it did not do good from, from a critical standpoint. It, It was mixed reviews at best. Um, so the critical world did not love the Joker, but the people that watched it loved it because they identified with it through the zeitgeist. And that's why it sold so many tickets. And yeah, of course it's remember, Batman. Joaquin Phoenix, but Joaquin Phoenix, man, you know, he, he won. Yeah. And he, you know, well, I mean, his job was amazing. I, that was great acting. That's what I'm saying. So it's difficult to not, you know, rate a film that high when you're rating the actor who played the main role in the film that high. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think there might be some of that that was popular. Again, it's it's the Batman, it's the Joker. These are things that, you know, folks who love the comic books will will clamor to see. But I thought it was it was very well done and, and well deserving yeah, it of its, you know, of being listed there. So, like, I look at you talk about popular. I mean, I'm looking if you look at the list of uh, nominees, Star Wars wasn't on there. Yeah, but it wasn't a great story. Well, I don't know, man. Like when you come down to like you talk about popular, right? Everyone's gonna everyone's about. gonna kill me now. Um, no, no, we talked about popular, right? Yeah. So if that was gonna make the mark, then Star Wars should have made it. Like, right? Come on, but that's not what they're looking at. The Academy is the Academy. Like they have their own rating system, and I think that's what's gonna happen, you know, going forward. And you mentioned, you know, this idea that you're not gonna have these epics, you know, be listed. Um, as nominees anymore. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm okay with that. I don't think we're losing anything because times have changed. Well, not right? just listed as nominees, Nick, but made. Okay. You know, and, and again, I'm, you know, maybe I'm, you know, in the minority, maybe I'm in the majority. I don't know, but that's okay because we're not, maybe we're not there anymore. 
that's not what we watch anymore. So mm. if they're not being, if they're not getting made, it's because people don't want them. Right. I mean, we went, we're going down to, you know, 10 second content that people are consuming and binge watching. Right. It's, it's hard enough to keep people's attention for five seconds, you know, commercials, you know, commercials used to be a lot longer than they are now. Now they're, you know, what, six to 15 seconds, you know, versus how long they used to be. So like everything is shifting and changing. So I think that what we're going to see nominated is just going to be, as you mentioned, kind of like part of the current zeitgeist. And that's okay. Cause that's how it should be. I don't want to see that the Epic always wins cause it's an Epic. Right. Like that. Oh, look how long it was. <laughs> you know, And like, <laughs> well, and how basically the idea that I, I know you're not talking about the length of the film, but yeah. basically like, look how long we were able to sustain greatness. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what's so amazing about epics. Right. It's like you were able to be that great for that long. Holy crap. Well, films have power, though. Films have power. Right. Like like. Yeah, I, I I get what you're saying, but but films like that have power. It's Malcolm X is a powerful film. Um, Schindler's List is a powerful film. Uh, you know, th- th- these are movies that need to get made and actually help educate the public on uh, moments in history that were important. Um, even dare I say it, uh, the, the um, what's the uh, movie with Jim Caviezel where he's uh, the, yeah, the Passion of the Christ? That's an important movie. I don't know if it gets made anymore. Um, I, you know, I, it doesn't like serve my belief system necessarily, but but it's a movie that we need to have tolerance for and allow to get made. And that's the concern is that when you shoot for streaming you shoot in a different way. And I guess eventually um, the star power, the top talent uh, will, will follow. But, but if it doesn't, that's okay. That's, that's more for the, for the indie creator, right? Like, <laughs> so, so I think that's, I think that's pro indie and that's good. I, I'm curious, Nick, to see uh, just how it turns out because it could be like you say, like a changing of the, of the tide, and and maybe we never go back to the way it was or or, or what we're used to, uh, or maybe we view this as the weakest award season in the history of film, outside of maybe the year two thousand. So, or was it? 99? Yeah, I think well, I think I you'll ha- I think you'll just yeah I think you'll just have to see. You know, again, I don't think that you know what gets nominated and what gets awarded could ever be considered weak. But I think that if you were to make a comparison to previous years and, you know, because what I'm looking at is when you mention the epics and the stories, the types of stories that you, you know, desire to be told that you think are important. It's not about the Oscars, you know, whether or not they win an Oscar. I don't believe Malcolm X won one. So it's like it's really about, you know, storytelling and, you know, how much is going to be shifted. So put Oscars away, put that conversation aside And you kind of look at going forward between 2020 and let's say 2025, will there be space in our lives for epic films? It's a great point. Yeah. And will will the data allow it to exist? That's the point I'm getting at too a little bit is we're going to see a data-based potentially award season this year for the first time in history because the movie didn't get made because the movie needed to get made. It got made. If it's going to a streaming service, it got made because it addresses an audience. Potentially. Yeah, and I think potentially. That's, but, well, but it's a it's a yes because you know that's something that we always say in our consults with creatives is that it addresses an audience, but that audience could simply be a fan base, right? Like Brad Pitt has a fan base, mm-hmm. right? So he may not be speaking to any specific community out there or on any you know relevant topic, but it's him. And people want to see what he's doing. And I think that that's where you have your star system um, will continue to apply isn't uh, in how successful necessarily a movie is on the grand scheme of things. I think it's going to be in the way that you create the media, you're allowed to break the data. You're allowed to break away from the algorithm when you have a following like that. Yeah. So again, you can have a Brad Pitt in an Epic, 
that's okay. Right. He's going to break your algorithm. It doesn't matter. People are following him. People are looking at his stuff. You know, there's certain directors, same thing. You know, you'll, you'll watch their stuff because Hey, you know them and you know, they're good for it. Right. Tarantino. There's going to be certain, exactly. Certain I, yeah, certain IP. If star Wars wants to make an Epic, you know, they want to make a three hour long film, man, star Wars fans are going to watch it. Like, no, it's not, it's not don't watch anything. Star yeah, Wars that's fans. what I'm saying. So forget your algorithm and all that. No, they'll watch it. So I think <laughs> there will be room so long as there's, um, you know, there you have some sort of following associated with it. Yeah, I agree. And I also think story beats the algorithm too. Like you can have, and I think Apple TV Plus has been really great about that, about sort of telling mo- stories and, and purchasing movies that are just strictly great stories and well-performed and hey, I got a question and they'll roll it out, you know? Well, yep. now that you bring that up, I got a question mm-hmm. is Tom Hanks as an actor, not as a voiceover, right. For, uh, for Woody is Tom Hanks as an actor still relevant. I think so. I think he's probably, if, if he were to God forbid die tomorrow, he would go down as one of the top 100 actors of all time. Oh, no, for sure. I get that. Maybe top 50. No, no, no. I'm talking about right now. And the reason I ask is because he's made a couple of films recently that I, I'm not hearing a lot about. And I don't know if there is some something happened in the stories that just didn't quite hit. Like maybe they weren't great stories. Uh, but, you know, Tom Hanks, you know, he's going to pull off a great performance. Mm-hmm. You know, like even if the story's bad, he's going to be great in it. And I'm I'm kind of wondering about that. Like, I'm just not seeing a flood of conversation around Tom Hanks films lately. Right. That's, that's why I'm asking the question. Cause basically right back to what you said, it's like, well, story and, you know, great acting that'll all, you know, work itself out and break your algorithm. I'm like, is, is Tom breaking the algorithm it's just, or is he stuck in it? It just, it just depends because I think a lot of his movies, they're going to be based on a true story. Uh, some of his movies are sort of historical pieces. Um, they're not, um, we're, we're in, like you said, like 2020, there's no year like it. And we're in the middle of this pandemic. Everybody has this low grade anxiety going on. They're in their house. They're all getting used to sort of consuming this high end content. And what I mean by that is Hollywood produced films that they've dumped a lot of money into. Didn't mean the movie's going to be great, but they've dumped a lot of money into. And they're watching it on a streaming device and they're all getting, and we're all just sort of getting used to it right now. And so you can miss movies here or there. There are a lot of shows and movies that like people just haven't watched because there's so much out there to consume and you just can't watch everything. And do you want to watch it that way? Um, you know, if, if you're, if you're someone that watches Netflix on their computer or iPad, then you're probably binging or you're probably watching YouTube. You're not, necessarily watching a Tom Hanks movie. Whereas normally a Tom Hanks movie would come out in a theater and then that would create the conversation. You'd get the buzz around how good it was or how well reviewed it was. And that is Tom Hanks. Yeah. It's just crazy to me because you just mentioned, you know, again, the story and, and the performance and stuff. And I was just thinking about Tom Hanks and I think his latest movie was a Greyhound, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I just, yeah, I don't. I just haven't heard anything about it. So anyway, that's kind of an aside, but you know, it made me think about Tom Hanks. And again, you know, I've, he's relevant to me. <laughs> you yeah, know, he's yeah, he'll always phenomenal be. On, on so many different levels. That it's, you know, I'd love to see him and and even more stuff. Um, but yeah, anyway, that was an aside. He stole my heart and big. So I, he's he's had me as a fan ever since. <laughs> right, uh, had me I, since. Right? Yeah, and I saw Big in the theater. It was great, and. Um, I don't even think I was old enough to see it, but I saw it. It was, I was with my sisters and my parents, I think, uh, <laughs> parents didn't care about their kids back in the day. I think my parents sent me to go watch uh, nightmare on Elm street as a kid, <laughs> like with my sisters. <laughs> yeah. Like, they were, they were good practical jokers. Yeah. And you can't, and then you can't sleep. You can't sleep for weeks because that's when he shows up. Um, right. Yeah. And by the way, we're just getting out of October. Halloween. And we're going to talk about that a little bit in a little bit about streaming, but people have been trying to remake nightmare on Elm street for a really long time. 
not remake it really, like not the IP itself. Not I'm not talking about literally. I'm saying they've been trying to make something that is impactful like that as a horror film. Again, nobody can do it. It's like you cannot cash someone's lottery ticket twice. They have a they had a brilliant premise. They executed it perfectly. They had a moment in time. They owned it. Like no more sing songy, like try to like have a little rhyme that's creepy when people sing. That all comes from like being inspired by Nightmare on Elm Street, right? Like yeah. can't do it. Can't cash that lottery ticket twice, Nick. Uh, no. You, you talked about shortened content and how people are like binging 10 second content, whatever. And so we want to have this conversation about streaming and just sort of the overall state of it and the most popular uh, show from October was The Haunting of Bly Manor on Netflix. And you probably would expect that because it's October and there's horror around it. Um, but you still had at number two sort of non-horror, uh, well, not sort of, definitely not horror. It's Shit's Creek being the number two streamed show across all streaming platforms. So you had the haunting of Bly, Bly Manor as number one across all streaming platforms had, um, had Schitt's Creek, uh, believe it. Number two, I want to double check that actually really quick, Nick, um, to make sure I'm right about that. But, uh, uh, I think it was, it, I think it was way up there. Yeah. Number two for, for the month. And then the Mandalorian number three, and then the 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 god awful Hubie Halloween at number four, but um, <laughs> the the thing about um, these shows and um, the the way that we rank them and the way they're ranked rather across streaming services is that there's no consistency, and so when you're uh, advisory producers like me and you are Nick, and we want to go out and tell indie filmmakers, okay, this is what people are watching, this is the zeitgeist, this is what people are binging, this is how this is like the mood and the tone that people are looking for today. It's very hard to track because even the month before uh, you had shows that were in the top 10 that did not show up in the top 10 at all in October. So if you look at top 10 in September, you had Cobra Kai, the boys on Amazon away, ratchet Mulan, the social dilemma, get organized with the home edit <laughs> love guaranteed and then closed it out with, with, uh, or Enola Holmes and then closed it out with Schitt's Creek. So of those 10 in September, only Schitt's Creek and ratchet showed up in the top 10 for the following month. And so I don't know, Nick, what's going on here? <laughs> what can we hold? That's true. Yeah. Well, it's, and like we mentioned before, like all of it is just changing and it, it, sometimes it seems random. Sometimes it seems like, like things don't make sense, but the odd thing about it is that it all makes sense now. And, but just differently, right. Mm. It makes sense with the, the way that the algorithm pushes data to us, you know, or pushes content to us based off data, excuse me. Um, but it's also like the way that we watch content. So, you know, if everyone is binging, in October, and then let's say it's let's just call it um, you know Series A, right? Everyone's binging Series A in October, but there's only one season of it. Well, you're not binging it in November. Mm -hmm. It's done. It's not going to show up on your top ten because it's it's done. It's over with. Like the conversation is done, and now they're waiting for the next thing. Either they're waiting for the next season to come, or they're just on to the next thing, right? On to watching the next thing, right? And then you have something like Shit's Creek. Well, it won five Emmys, right? So you've got a lot of people who are there along for the ride throughout, you know, the the multiple seasons they've had, and they already know about it. They've already watched it. But now you've got all these people who are interested. Like, what is this show? Five Emmys? This is a sweep. Like, what is this about? And they're going to watch it. Yeah. And that might give you a little bit of a longer runway because they've got six seasons. Right? A little bit harder to binge all that stuff at once. So, you know, maybe they'll be top for two months. Maybe even three. Depending how long it takes the general public who saw the five Emmys. And they were like, oh, I got to watch it. So maybe get two or three months out of it. But I think that's what's different now is that it's 
the way that we watch. We're, we're binging content. And so that you're just waiting for the next binge worthy thing to happen in the following months. So it's going to continue to shift. And then, like I mentioned about them pushing content to us, you know, to me, that's like the biggest game in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I tell you what the top 10 are, whether or not they're actually the top 10. And I make them the top 10 because I told you they were the top 10. (laughs) Right? Like, that's it. You're going to watch it because that's what you do. You know, you were one of the people in the, you're the masses. And, you know, whether you want to believe it or not. feels like an election primary. Exactly. Whether you want to believe it or not, there is a social dilemma that is pushing you into specific content. So I think. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so I think that that's what's that's basically what's happening. So yeah, it's difficult sometimes to say what kind of content the people should be making. I think honestly, when it comes down to it, if we're talking to indies about this, you know, I always say like, you know, forget all what's going on on Netflix and these other places. They're dealing with a, a totally different game than the indie filmmakers dealing with. The people who will always watch your content are the people that you speak for. Yeah. Yeah, that's the key. So get out there and speak for them and make sure that your content is available to them and make sure that they know that you're making the content so that they can support the creation of your content. And that's where you go. All this other stuff. I mean, honestly, I hate to say it's like that's the that's the big game. You know, this Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, totally different game. We're talking about it because it's relevant in the in the grand scheme of things for filmmaking and what's happening. But for the indie filmmaker, you know, keep it keep your what your ears and eyes and and nose and hands and feet to the ground, yeah. right? Be there with the people uh, in your community. If you're supporting them, then they'll support you. Well, what you just said was so important. I mean, kudos because I think that. There's a, and I said it earlier in this conversation, I think there's a deluge of content. And so as a creative and an independent creative at that, you start to get the sense that there's so much out there. How can I make anything that competes? And then when you actually look at the data and you break it down, you realize like Amazon has one show that, that peaks into the top 10 and carries their whole network viewing, which was the boys in September. And then it completely fell off the map in October. And if you look at Apple TV for all the great content that they truly make on Apple TV plus, uh, they have one show that really carries all their viewership and that's Ted Lasso, um, for as great and, and, and diverse and how much market share Netflix has, they really have the office in Schitt's Creek that like drives all viewership and hours spent on that platform uh, in, a, in a lot of ways because everything else to your point, Nick, earlier is that they're binging it, they're over with it, and then that's like, what's next? What's the next entree? What's the next meal? Um, the, 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 the sort of time spent on the platform, which justifies sort of ROI in the data sets for them, for the streamers, it's like it's all being pushed by um, just a few very small pieces of content. If you look at the whole thing, Disney plus Disney plus is a one, you know, let's release a massive thing once every three months. And that's going to drive our viewership without the Mandalorian compared to all the other top streamers. No one's watching Disney plus. It literally just comes down to the Mandalorian. Before that, it literally came down to Hamilton. Before that, it literally came down to Mulan. And so this is how they're surviving right now. And before Mulan, it was season one of the Mandalorian. <laughs> so, so that's what they're doing to drive viewership. And so if you think about it that way as an indie creative, you know that if you, hey, speak to your people, um, have your audience, make content for people who you know are going to watch your stuff, You'll always have viewership. And it's not that there's so much content out there you can't compete because there's just a few shows that are really driving viewership across all these platforms. You know, you have to continue to echo this sentiment and just say you have to be about a community of people. You have to be an echo for the voice of someone who needs someone to speak for them. I think that's the key to the independent filmmaker. Yeah. So I wanted to make a point uh, kind of close to the point that we were just making about sort of what is like, again, there's a sense that there's all this content out there and that all this stuff is going to be the future. And, and we think it is too, but there was a poll 
that was recently done by YouGov. And this poll was done because there's no certainty around a next stimulus package coming. Uh, you have uh, the money printer himself, Jerome Powell of the Federal Reserve, saying, hey, we're out of tricks we can pull at the Fed. Um, if you don't have a stimulus, you know, the economy is going to crash or whatever. Uh, I think you're going to see mass layoffs in Q4, not to be doom and gloom. But I just think a lot of, we talked about this in the last any talk. I think a lot of these companies and their capital allocation is really poor. I think investors don't even realize the half of how poor, poorly some of these large corporations are run. And so when they don't get that extra stimulus money, they're going to lay people off. Money's going to get tight and people are going to literally have to make a choice. Do we keep Hulu or do we keep Netflix? Do we keep Prime? Uh, you know, or do we keep uh, Apple TV plus? Do we keep Disney plus? Do we keep uh, the premium subscription to, to Peacock? Do we keep HBO max? And as you start to make those decisions and sort of skinny up your budget, um, which would you keep? And so you poll did this, uh, uh, or you gov did this poll that asked, what are the must have streaming services? And number one was Nick, do you know? Let's guess Netflix. You're right. Netflix. So 49% <laughs> of the respondents said Netflix is must have, and that's got to make Reed Hastings and crew smile ear to ear because that's a pretty damn good response. But what I thought was very compelling was number two. And number two was none, none, no services are must have. And that's got to be terrible news for everyone, but Netflix that's in the streaming game. Meaning when times are tight, people will literally just cut off all services except Netflix. Netflix is like the new cable. They'll just, they'll, Everything else gets their cord cut, so to speak. I know it's digital, so it's not really cutting the cord, but you get my point. And they'll just keep Netflix. By the way, don't believe that? Number three is YouTube. <laughs> so, so we're not YouTube Red, not YouTube TV, YouTube. So uh, we'll just watch content on our phone. And if they had probably listed out TikTok, had they listed out Instagram, uh, had they listed out some of these other social media networks, those probably would have shown up on the list as well, ahead of like Hulu, ahead of Prime, ahead of Apple TV or HBO Now, et cetera, so, or HBO Max. I think that probably would have been true, Nick. I don't know, but my guess is that people can kind of deal with just having Netflix, which I think is very, very fascinating. Yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of curious sometimes, you know, if you were to ask the average person, you know, what were the top three streaming services? I wonder if they would actually include YouTube, mm. you know, I because I don't know if they do. I, I, ex exactly. Right. So I, I think that that was an interesting one, you know, for it to come up third on there. You know, sometimes I wonder, were they pushed? Were they given some of these choices? You know, how were they given some of these choices? Um, but it's interesting because if you really, I mean, if I looked at it and I were to say the number one streaming service, it would actually be YouTube because of the utility of it, right? There's not necessarily as much, or I would say there's not at all, nearly as much utility to Netflix as there is to YouTube. It's used in a different way. Yeah. But the idea that Netflix came out on top might have simply been just because that's what people think about when they think streaming services. They don't, you know, they don't think about YouTube in that same way. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I I'm curious too. Like for you know, I, I've mentioned to you before. You know, I got Peacock, and I'm you know, like just taking the time to cancel <laughs> it. Like that's all I got to do is just just get around to canceling it because I'm gonna cancel it. But it's just like. Um, I think one of the things with Netflix, you have a fire in your belly about Peacock. I do, man. It's it's because it's flipping annoying, and the reason I say it's flipping annoying is because it's like they didn't get the basics right. You know, like that's it. Like, like people, you're gonna go back to YouTube because you know what you're gonna get. Like, it's basic stuff. Like, it's basic search. There's basic things where you can pin something and make it a favorite or whatever. You can get back to it really easily. Netflix is the same way kind of deal. Like, you know what to get. Like, you know what you're going to get. You know how to use a search capability. 
you know stuff is going to pop up. You know your continue watching is going to be there. It's straightforward. Like there's nothing to think about, and you're always going to get this. Now, Peacock came around, and I got that because you know I wanted to stream some of my soccer games, Premier League. And the fact that you know I'm watching this thing, and I am like something happened, right? The, the my web page went out. I was watching on my computer, right? Something yeah. crashed. Yeah. I open this thing back up, and it starts from the beginning. <laughs> I'm like, why don't you start where you stop, right? And then I'm like, okay, then let me start it where I stop. Well, I I can't. Like, I don't know the the bar at the bottom doesn't let me click on a certain time. I'm over here just clicking blindly, hoping that I can get it back to the time that I was on, but I don't know what time I'm clicking on. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you doing, Peacock? Search. I search for Chelsea. It should, gives me one result, and it says highlights. I know <laughs> you all have the full game. Like, that's why I got this. So, you know, like, why don't I see this in the search results? Why are you making this difficult for me? Right. right? And that's what I mean. It's like, I think that's what happens sometimes with these you know, when you start getting other streaming services, you you have a sense of what it should be based off of the bigger or the streaming services that you've already had, right? So YouTube TV, straightforward. Search is easy. The DVR thing is easy for, for saving things and saying what you want to get recorded. Everything's simple. You know, you got your library, you got home, you got live TV. It's straightforward, right? I know what I'm going to get. So now if I ever get another service, that doesn't give me what I want in the way that I'm expecting it, it's short-lived, right? I just don't have time. And I think that when you talk about, you know, having streaming services, you know, and figuring out what's when enough is enough, honestly, I think it comes down to like what you're really a fan of. And for me, like if you're a fan of basketball, you know, if you're a fan of the NBA, you're going to find ways to watch that. Like mm-hmm. that's just, you're always going to have it. But anything else that you got because maybe there was a show that you wanted to watch or there was this one specific movie that only came out on that streaming service, then maybe you got it for that. But after a while, if it, if, it, if worse comes to worse, push comes to shove, or you just start paying attention to your bank account and realize you're paying for stuff you don't use, then it's going to be like, no, I'm cutting all that stuff out. So yeah. if I'm a fan, I'm in. If I'm not a fan, then I'm out. Like for me, I could be done with Netflix tomorrow because – I'm not a fan of Netflix, right? I'm not a fan of any specific show or thing that they do. You know, I'm the guy who goes through and I click on all the shows. I'm like, okay, what do I want to watch? Click, 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 click. I keep going, click, click, click. And then you know what I end up watching? What? I end up watching the little previews that run like screensavers because I can't figure out what I want to watch. <laughs> and I'm working on my computer. <laughs> you know, I'll sit and do something else than then have that running in the background because it's just I'm not a fan of anything. So for me, it comes down to like the the main thing I'm a fan of is like the Premier League. Yeah. So what what do I have to pay? Just tell me. Whatever it is, I'll pay that and I'll watch the Premier League because I'm a fan. Everything else can go. Now, YouTube is difficult because I don't necessarily see it the same way as the rest of the streaming services because I see all of the other streaming services as entertainment. You know, even the ones that show documentaries, it's like, well, that's entertainment that also educates me, mm-hmm. whereas YouTube is a little bit of everything. If I want to specifically be educated and learn how to do a thing, I go to YouTube. So I don't even keep it in the same conversation as a Netflix or yeah. YouTube TV or anything like that. I think YouTube creates a competition problem for almost every other platform, entertainment or not, for that very reason. I mean, I learned how to combine my love for veggie burgers with my love for you know regional specialty. And now I'm like an expert at making regional burgers at home. And I just make crazy delicious regional burgers. You want a Juicy Lucy made of veggie meat? I got you. Like that's that's all yeah, and you, that's, and that's you all YouTube that, based, right? Yeah. But you could have seen that on Netflix, but you wouldn't have gotten the recipe, right? No. They would have talked about how this famous chef, you know, hangs upside down by his toe and barbecues it over the fire of you know baby dragon's <laughs> breath, <laughs> you know, and you would have been like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. But he didn't show you how to make the juicy Lucy. Got to go to YouTube for that. Yeah, and I think you're right. There's a there seems like there's a ceiling because. Every there's gonna there's already three hundred plus streaming services. All of them are gonna have their flagship show. 
we can't sign up for 300 things, guys. Like, we can't do it. So what's going to happen is that you're going to start to see mass consolidation in the next five years, where just big, giant companies are going to eat the smaller ones, and then we're going to have these services are going to be packaged. And guess what you're going to have? You're going to have cable TV on your TV, (laughs) not through a cable service, just on your Apple TV box or your Roku box or your Google Chromecast or whatever you have. Like that's going to be the new cable TV and it's all going to be owned by the biggest uh, uh, eater of companies. That's basically going to be it. And look, the squeeze is already happening. Uh, The baby boomers are spending um, just about 30 bucks a month on streaming services. Gen X is spending just about 45 bucks and millennials are spending 65, 70 bucks, but millennials don't, uh, but, but that was in May. And if you look now into October, millennials are cutting back. They went from 70, uh, 65, almost $70 a month on streaming services down to below 50, uh, in September and October. And so you're seeing, Everyone, babes, except for baby boomers, pulling back. Boomers are spending more money, I think, because they have the money for now. And you're seeing everyone else pull way, way back. So streaming companies get ready. And hey, if all those fails, you can go with none. And I think everybody, one will be happy. And, and if all of, all else fails, you can go with YouTube, which has always been endlessly entertaining and educational for, for me. Uh, so maybe you feel the same. So to, to, to wrap things up, there are a lot of people that ask, well, why do you guys do this podcast? We have a lot of new listeners that say, well, where did this come from? Why are you guys doing it? What's your origin story, if you will? Like, you know, tell us more about Bonsai. I know you want us to go to your website and see you on social, but how did this whole thing start? I thought it'd be a fun way to just wrap us up here, Nick, just to talk about where this whole thing started. And it really began as a sort of passion project for me and Nick uh, back in 2015 and 2016 when we were trying to understand and do research into the independent film market. And one of the ways we would do this is we'd do random surveys of people and ask them all these questions. And one of the questions we'd ask, we we literally would walk around with a clipboard and there are people out there that know us in film that remember me walking around with a backpack and a clipboard and we would walk around with this clipboard. And sometimes I'd have like my little recorder in my hand that I used to use back in my journalism days. And I would record this stuff. So I'd record the answer to these 10 questions. And one of the questions we would ask is what does making it mean to you? What does it mean for you to make it? And 80% of the people would say, Making it to me just means that I can do what I love and pay my bills. Simple as that. And then the other 20% were honest. I want to be famous. I want to make a great movie. <laughs> I want to be wildly, wildly rich. And uh, I'm kidding. I think that 80% <laughs> were, were truthful to a degree. Um, I don't want to, because I'm, I'm an optimist. Nick, you probably might have a more cynical <laughs> view of those answers. But that was the answers that we got. And, and it started to become this thing where it's like, okay, it seems to us that the common theme between amongst all independent creatives, regardless of what they want and how they answered the other nine questions, is that they want to make it. They want to basically be able to look in the mirror every day, wake up and say, I'm an artist. I'm a film creative and I make stuff that brings people joy or tells a story or supports a cause or sheds light or shines light on a social injustice or cause. And this is who I want to be something that I'm somebody who creates beautiful things in the world and I pay my bills doing it. Um, I think there were other creatives, Nick, that would, would answer that question and would have a bit of a chip on their shoulder. Like, Hey, there are people who said, I'm crazy for doing this, and now I want to prove them wrong. And there are people that were um, that we talked to that said, hey, I put off being a creative, went the corporate route for years, and just was like depressed. And so I just said, fuck it. I'm going to go and, you know, do my creative thing and, and you know, see what happens, Nick. 
Yeah. And I think that, you know, if you look at all this, you look at the creatives that we've spoken to and, and just being a creative in general, I think that there's just this innate sense that, you know, even if it doesn't come out early enough, it may come out later. Like you mentioned, people going into the corporate world and then stepping into this creative space, it's because they have to, mm-hmm. right? It's like they, they can't avoid it. They can't avoid this feeling inside of them to create. So it's just like, there's no choice for me. You know, I, I have to do this. So making it basically is listening to that voice that says, you must do this. This is your calling. But then a, being able to sustain the calling, right? Like, that's it. I mean, that's, and, and of course, there's different gradations of that where it's like, well, now I can be rich and famous, you know, doing the thing that I've wanted to do. But I think all of it, I think that 80% is right. It's just like, I just want to be able to do this without struggling to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the key. So I just want to make, 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 as long as I can continue to get paid, I can put food on the table. I can take care of my family, but I can be a creative, you know, then that's, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. So I think that's, you know, that's that authentic voice. It's just like, I just have to do this. Absolutely. And so fast forward from the days of Chris and Nick with the clipboard to 2018, when we started this podcast late 2018, it really came to our attention and people had recommended that we even do it that, well, we could extrapolate on these answers and go a little bit deeper with the interviews. And um, what we were finding basically was everybody wanted the same thing, but two, what was happening is a lot of creatives were able to make one film, but because of the sort of shortcomings and ignorance and, and, you know, the, the, tough decisions they had to make on the fly. They weren't able to make that second, third, fourth, fifth film and sustain a career. So literally the thing between an independent film creative making it, which is all they wanted to do and not making it was what they didn't know. And so we said, okay, well let's make this podcast where we bring in people who have made that one film and made those mistakes and can look back on it with, with an honest lens and say, here are the things that I would recommend or Let's bring in people who have made multiple films or multiple shows or have done worked on multiple teams and crews and and take that wisdom and those tools and those tactics and all the different things they do to actually do what they've done, which is to make it and pay their bills as a film creative. And let's get them to sort of testify on the microphone, if you will, and on the record on this podcast. And that has just maturated into what the Make It podcast is today, where we um, do indie talks. We do deep dive interviews. We do uh, industry insights, mistakes in the making, film investment series, and we have, and we try to approach independent film from his, uh, a particular point of view that's that's you know uniquely bonsai, but also um, enough different sort of POVs that no matter who you are in film, you can get something of value from it. And so from the podcast came the blog posts and our keynote speak, uh, speeches and a forthcoming book. And so we hope to keep uh, you know, doubling down with the audience's permission and, and you guys along the ride with us, uh, along for the ride with us to keep providing value to the independent creative. And in terms of the podcast, Nick, you know, we have so much in store uh, it's going to, we're going to keep upping the ante on quality, uh, do some hopefully unique and innovative stuff around the podcast in the next 12 months. Um, and if the pandemic lets up, uh, that'll be even better because we'll be able to do these face-to-face uh, interviews, uh, content pieces, man on the street pieces, maybe video pieces. And uh, it's the, the future is exciting for the Make It podcast. Yeah, and I just wanted to offer that, you know, you, you mentioned that we come with a, a, a specific voice or unique voice or even, let's say, a specific context to the discussions that we have. And I think that, you know, even prior to, to 2018, when we started the podcast, we did a lot of research and we actually attempted in many different ways to provide resources to filmmakers by scouring the Internet to find things that we thought would be of value to independent filmmakers and, you know, what we saw was that, you know, some of what we were providing was actually starting to collect dust in that it's some things that, 
you know, were printed, let's say, you know, 20 years ago that people generally <laughs> knew, you know, they generally knew the gist of it, but ne- weren't necessarily interested in in opening the book again, mm-hmm. you know, and, and reading those things. Uh, there's a ton of uh, YouTube channels out there that show you how to master lighting and master sound and do all of these things in the you know, in the making of the film itself. And we thought that that, that's nice. And those are things that filmmakers will find on their own that they'll get from, you know, trial and error, but that's not us, you know, we're not in there, you know, making the film. What is, what is the thing that, you know, we believe is challenging the independent filmmaker the most. And, you know, through our research on that, and, and again, providing these resources, we found that the biggest gap was really in, you know, the business of film. Yep. Right. And understanding, you know, how how people, how audiences work and how they consume content or how do they identify content that they actually want to watch. And then, of course, this huge split between the independent filmmaking community and the big studios and the big streamers. You know, there's this idea that the independent filmmaker wants to aspire to being, you know, to getting their film on Netflix or somewhere else. But the chasm between the independent filmmaking community and those streamers continues to grow. But, you know, we don't have to keep falling into the chasm or being subject to it. We need to rethink the way that we create content and for whom we create content. You know, these are the types of things that we want to get out there to the community so that they understand that they don't have to continue to beat their heads against the wall, you know, doing the things that they used to do. There's new ways of doing things. Right. So that's where the focus is. And like you mentioned about all of our guests, you know, we, I think, are slightly different from a lot of other podcasts in that, you know, we aren't necessarily uh, pushing those guests into responses about very specific things that we are particularly interested in. We are more interested in their, um, like generally, their experiences and who they are because they shape how they've been able to find success or make mistakes in the industry. So the uniqueness of their voices and their journeys, I think, speak volumes to the many independent filmmakers out there who have different independent voices and unique journeys uh, that could be impacted. So I think that there's, you know, we try to provide a lot of value because we still believe that, you know, um, there's there's a bit of a void out there for independent filmmakers and content that speaks directly to uh, giving them actionable advice to help them be successful. Well said. I could not say it better myself. And I think that's a great place for uh, us to stop and wrap this up. Uh, Nick, thank you again for a wonderful conversation. Yeah, man. This is awesome. I love doing it. Look forward to the next one for sure. Yeah, 100%. And uh, I hope that little origin story of Bonsai and, the, and more specifically the Make It podcast uh, is is good and, and lands well with everyone out there listening. And if you guys have more questions, send them in and I'll tell you where to do it. You can reach out to us at contact at bonsai.film. That's B-O-N-S-A-I dot F-I-L-M. So you can email us there. Uh, it's probably easier to reach us on social. You can uh, send us con, uh, comments and uh, requests and questions and concerns at underscore Bonsai Creative. That's on Instagram and on Twitter. You can also reach out to us on Facebook. All you have to do is search for Bonsai Creative and we'll come right up on Facebook. The One of the best places to talk to us, though, is on our website, and that's full of resources as well. That's at www.bonsai.film. You can also uh, become one of our creatives uh, in the Bonsai community uh, by going there. And if you know someone uh, that, that would be great for the podcast or you have suggestions for the podcast, there's also a form you can fill out on that site, uh, on our site, uh, that uh, makes those suggestions as well. And we'll follow up on them if they are valid, Nick. <laughs> yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. And so, um, with that, uh, Nick, send us off with the, uh, credo, my friend. Yes, sir. So for all of our independent filmmakers out there and all of our creatives, I'll say be better, be creative, be engaged. And thank you for listening, Nick. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, man. Take it easy. All right. Peace. Later. Juicy Lucy. (laughs) You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. 
To find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Book Us to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.